Hello again. This is Gary Meese with the case against. We're going to be back looking at the West Memphis 3 case. And we're on chapter 7 of my book, uh, The Case Against the West Memphis 3 Killers. Uh, briefly, the case involves the murders of Christopher Byers, Stevie Branch, and Michael Moore on May 5th, 1993 by Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miskelly Jr. in West Memphis, Arkansas. Most people are familiar with these, this case through the movies, the three Paradise Lost movies that were on HBO, and to a lesser extent with the West of Memphis movie that Damien Eccles was a co-producer on, and also uh, the fictionalized version, not so many people saw this, called Devil's Knot. And a few people have actually done a little more research and read another book or two or read one of Damien's pretty bad books. Um, I've written three books about this. Uh, and the book I'm going to read from today is the revised, condensed, and probably more readable and, and certainly more affordable version of, of the two earlier books I wrote. They're combined. And this book is a combination of those two books. And the earlier books was were Blood on Black and Where the Monsters Go. They're all available on Amazon, in print and in Kindle format. Uh, we've already covered quite a bit of the case, and we're going to be moving on. Uh, and I've been fiddling with the audio today, so I hope this is okay. And uh, also... Uh, you know, my throat was bothering me for the last week or so, so uh, I didn't record last week, but I, I, I do intend to adhere to a somewhat regular schedule on producing this podcast. Uh, I'm just going to begin. Uh, Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin were best friends, blood brothers. By May 1993... Eccles often spent the night at his 16-year-old girlfriend, Dominique Tears, home in the Lakeshore Trailer Park and that lies between Marion and West Memphis, Arkansas. Uh, Jason Baldwin's trailer was down the street from where Dominique Tear and her mother lived. The trash turn trailer parks are near where the inter Interstate 55 from the north joins east-west Interstate 40 briefly through West Memphis, Arkansas. While Baldwin, a skinny 16-year-old, lived in Lakeshore and attended Marion High, much of his social life revolved around the video galleries, bowling alley, and skating rink across the interstate in West Memphis. Baldwin lived with two younger brothers and a mentally ill mother recently separated from his habitually drunken stepfather. Her new boyfriend, a chronic felon, had, had just moved in. Uh, Eccles told officers in May 1992, not 1993, but 92, a year earlier, that he and Baldwin were involved in so-called gray magic. Uh, another trail park teen, Jesse Miskelly Jr., 17, and Baldwin had been off and on as friends for years. 
Marl Everett's book, Dark Spell, Surviving the Sentence, tells of Baldwin's first encounter with Miss Skelly on his first day in sixth grade at Marion Elementary School. And these anecdotes uh, from Baldwin about his encounters with uh, Miss Skelly and uh, uh, Eccles, his early encounters, he basically tells the same canned versions in virtually every interview he does, just very similar to how Damien Eccles spouts off the same talking points in the same rote manner in virtually every interview he does with, you know, nobody nobody ever asks any challenging questions or really even any interesting questions if you want to know the truth. but uh, Mara, uh, you know, it, the, her book, which is uh, the, it's a sequel to Devil's Knot. It mostly chronicles Baldwin's f- fantasy of what his life in uh, prison was like. Uh, is re- very readable for laughs, but it's pretty hard to take seriously. Anyway, uh, but there are, you know, there's useful tidbits in these books by these various people. Even, even for Damien Eccles, there's some really interesting stuff in there that he, where he reveals himself without meaning to. Seemingly, or maybe he wants to be revealed and he's teasing us with it. I wouldn't put it, that would be more his style, actually. He just doesn't seem to convey that attitude very obviously in his books. Anyway, Miskelly attacked Baldwin without provocation during recess. This is in sixth grade, Marion Elementary. Howling, howling like he meant to kill him. Still in eighth and ninth grades, the boys lived on the same street in Lakeshore and got to be pretty good friends. After Eccles' grandmother moved to Lakeshore, Eccles began hanging out there. And uh, in Life After Death, Eccles described first noticing Baldwin Quote, a skinny kid with a black eye and a long, long blonde mullet. Eccles was struck by the music cassettes in his big backpack, Metallica, Anthrax, Iron Maiden, Slayer, and every other hair band a young hoodlum could desire. And I think, you know, this speaks, this without really meaning to, speaks to how, just how mainstream, uh, Baldwin's taste were that supposedly, you know, captured the interest of the West Memphis Police Department and that uh, bands such as Metallica, Anthrax, Iron Maiden, uh, their videos have been on, Iron Maiden's videos have been on MTV for quite a while. I knew who they were. I could. I'm even semi-familiar with some of their songs. Slayer, I'm less familiar with, but I think I remember the name. And you know, every other hair band. So basically, when we're talking about the bands that that uh, Baldwin liked, it were the heavier bands, rock bands from the 1980s, basically. Uh, after his nanny's leg was amputated, the Eccles family moved to Lakeshore. In Life After Death, Eccles described Lakeshore as full of, quote, run-down and beaten-up, unquote, mobile homes filled with jobless drunks and addicts who earn their money through petty crime or scrounging up recyclables. 
Uh, Eccles more recently imagined that the trailers had somehow improved with age. In his book, he says, I suppose it would now be considered lower middle class. Uh, he couldn't be more wrong about this. I haven't been there in five years or so. So I, I don't think they've improved in the last five years. And certainly, and Eccles' book came out about the same time that the last time I was in that trailer park. Uh, trailers do not age well. The lake is the same scummy stink hole that Eccles remembered. I in particular remember going out there because when I was covering news in West Memphis because there were complaints from some residents about a huge fish kill out there. The place stank. Uh, it was green. It was co co A lot of it was just coated with green uh, algae, I guess, from the all the rotting materials in, in the bottom of the lake. Uh, now, Lakeshore is, is a hotbed of occultism, witchcraft, and Satanism, and it's populated by many carnies and other itinerant workers. Uh, residents remained resistant to the local strain of earnest evangelism, and the West Memphis Three are kind of folk heroes out there to many people. Uh, you know, there is there was a church, small church out there, not particularly well attended, and I'm sure there were some. I'm sure there are some fervent and good Christian believers who attend other churches in the area, uh, but for the most part. Uh, my understanding is, uh, you know, we're basically not, we're dealing with a lot of people who are, to put it nicely, unchurched and uh, uh, prone to, you know, various forms of, various forms of vice and petty crime. Eccles in Life After Death described Marion High School as a sort of rural Beverly Hills 90210, where, quote, where kids drove brand new cars to school, wore Gucci clothing, and had enough jewelry to spark the envy of rap stars. Again, this is echoes with sort of some sort of fantasy about what Marion High School is like. I, I haven't just hung around there, but I've been around the school, uh, you know, some years later, and uh, saw the kids there, and they're very much run of the mill. Uh, lower to middle middle class kids. Um, they were typical, I would say a typical mix of modestly attired kids from modestly uh, from a modestly middle class community. I have no reason to think that uh, there was some sort of uh, elite uh, at Marion High School back in 1992-93 that disappeared in the meantime but between then and the time that I was more familiar with the school which would have been in the early uh, 19, uh, 2010s um, but needless to say Marion is not an elite suburban community uh, the other book I go into detail about that uh, I think the medium income is you know, you could consider Marion, Arkansas, the West Memphis, Arkansas, to a certain extent as well as being bedroom communities for Memphis, Tennessee, which is just across the river. It's it's an easy drive and it's not a far drive, but you do have to cross a bridge to get there. 
which can pose problems at times. Um, another suburb of West Memphis on the east side, Germantown, Tennessee, has median income that's twice as much as Marion High School. And I don't even think there you would say they were Mer Beverly Hills 90210, though they there are a lot of people who live there who are really doing quite affluent and doing very well indeed. Um, anyway, as outsiders together at Marion Junior High, Damian and Jason became best friends. They shared interest in music, skateboarding, and video games. Very typical, very, very typical teenage interest. Okay. In Life After Death, Damien described how he met Miss Skelly. And again, Eccles makes the same sort of description in his interviews as well. At the Baldwin trailer, uh, Damien was told that Jason was over at Miss Skelly's trailer, four or five trailers away. Damien described Miss Gelly is a short, greasy, manic figure prone to funny, slightly odd antics. Miss Gellies were pumping up tires on their old trailer and moving it to Highland Trailer Park just across the way. Highland Trailer Park was a trailer park that was on the east side of Interstate 55. Lakeshore is on the west. Highlands up a little bit closer to it's really skirts the Marion city limits. Basically, you can look from your if you had a backyard littered with trash, old uh, refrigerators, washing machines, and scrapped cars, and you were standing in your back your typical backyard in Highland Trailer Park, you could look across the way onto the campus of of the uh, main schools in Marion. Uh, still, said Eccles, I never did see Jesse a great deal, but we came familiar enough to talk when we met. Jason and I would run into him at the bowling alley and spend an hour or two playing pool or hang out for a little while at the Lakeshore store. Uh, Deanna Holcomb, uh, Damien Eccles' former girlfriend as of 1993, described a tighter relationship with Eccles and Miss Kelly, naming Jason and Jesse as particular friends of Eccles. And if anybody would know this, it would be Deanna. Uh, when Damien moved up to high school, he left Jason a grade behind. Damien soon adopted an all-black wardrobe, complete with trench coat, partially inspired by Johnny Depp's Edward Scissorhands. <clears throat> Jennifer Bearden was 12 when she encountered the boys at the skating rink around uh, February 1993. She struck up a romantic relationship with the 18-year-old Eccles. And mind you, the 18-year-old Eccles was a prospective father with a pregnant teenage, a 16-year-old girlfriend at the time that he was having this relation, romantic relationship with this 12-year-old girl. She later testified, whenever we were at the skating rink, uh, Jesse was a little bit louder. He liked to cause a little bit more trouble. There was an incident that he stole the eight ball from the pool table at the skating rink. He showed it to us, and actually Damien and Jason got blamed for it. They got kicked out of the skating rink for it. They were pretty upset with him. 
So as we can see, uh, the idea that it's, that's often promoted that Damien and Jason just barely knew Jesse and Miss Kelly is just simply not true. This girl that just had just known Damien really for a few weeks and met him in one social setting, which actually there were two social settings, but basically met him just a few times, mostly at the skating rink, was already aware that he had some sort of acquaintanceship with Jesse Miskelly Jr., and she was cognizant of his character. Now, there was a, there was a younger playmate living two doors down from Baldwin in 1993. His name was Joseph Samuel Dwyer. Now, Dwyer later described the relationships among Eccles, Baldwin, and Miskelly. Dwyer knew Miss Kelly well, particularly since Miss Kelly's stepmother, Shelbia Miss Kelly, who was separated from Big Jesse, Jesse Sr., lived on the same street as Dwyer and Baldwin. And if you're getting the idea this is a very small world indeed, it, in, it is indeed. The Dwyer was in frequent contact with Jason and younger brother Matt, but he didn't associate with Eccles. He says, I really didn't have anything to do with him just because, uh, just the way he acted. We'd get off the school bus and he'd be standing there. It's almost like craving attention in an all-black outfit so all the kids on the bus would see him. One day he painted a star over one of his eyes. Damien was a talker. He liked to say things to get people's attention. I don't know what your impression is from this, but this is really is a pathetic, grasping behavior from a, a troubled teenager who will do, literally will do anything to get attention. And he got altogether too much attention with some of his actions now, didn't he? Uh, Dwyer just characterized Miss Kelly as a trailer park redneck. Dwyer said, I did see... Damien and Jason together after Jason started getting friendly with Damien. I was around him less than before because I didn't like Damien. I know that after Jason started hanging out with Damien, he got a trench coat just like Damien's. It was a long black trench coat. Damien had a certain way of talking and Jason picked up some of Damien's way of talking. And contrary to the impression that's often given that the West Memphis Three uh, somehow stood out from the rest of the kids in West Memphis and Marion because of their unusual style of dress. The fact is, is their style of dress was not that unusual, aside from Eccles wearing all black. We'll, let's readily concede that Damien Eccles did draw some attention because he wore all black. Uh, and even he didn't even do that consistently, but he did particularly his habit of wearing this long black trench coat in the summertime where it's incredibly hot and humid in West Memphis, and he walked around a lot, so he was outside. So you're talking about, in some cases, <coughs> weather that's 100 degrees on the thermostat or more and a very, very high humidity, and 
so it's feeling like 110 and he's walking around or 115 or 120 and he's walking around in a, a long black trench coat that does tend to draw attention to you and he wanted attention let's let's con- readily concede that however just because they wore black just because there was he was wearing black doesn't mean he was that unusual as Dwyer says the trench coat thing at the time, that was sort of a fashion fad. I have one of uh, everybody. If they didn't have one, they wanted one. That was kind of a fashion thing. It was the rock shirt, rock t-shirts, and the trench coat. After the arrest, Dwyer recalled, everybody out there in the trailer park was terrified. Everybody was profiled because of our rock t-shirts, the trench coat, the long hair. Everybody looked at us like we were just part of this cult thing, and it was totally made up, totally made up. And we all felt like we could just as easily been uh, picked as a suspect because we were in the same trailer park dressed the same. Uh, and which raises the question, why weren't all these other kids, if, if all the police were interested in were kids dressed in rock T-shirts, Metallica and... and uh, had long, um, you know, fabulous mullets or long hair or some unusual hairstyling. Why weren't all the rest of these kids brought in? Maybe because they had, there was no evidence they'd engaged in any kind of criminal behavior, unlike Damien Eccles. Many other teens in that area were obsessed with heavy metal. Dwyer said, a lot of our people in our age groups at the time were interested in rock and roll music and in heavy metal music. After the three boys were found dead and the news cameras came out to Lakeshore from time to time, anyone wearing a Metallica t-shirt or some other heavy metal band shirt t-shirt was viewed as a devil worshiper, especially if the person had long hair. Charlotte Bly Boy, who lived at Lakeshore the summer of 92 and visited often, told Police that Eccles and Miskelly were close friends at that time, constantly seen with her cousin, Buddy Lucas. Now, Buddy Lucas most famously was the person who heard Jesse Miskelly Jr. confess to the killings with tears in his eyes the morning after the killings, before the bodies had even been found, and then gave the shoes he'd been wearing to the scene to Buddy Lucas. And uh, this story came out some months later. Uh, Buddy Lucas uh, took a lie uh, took a lie detector test, and he attempted to renege on his story and say, "Well, you know, I, I that didn't really happen." And it showed he was lying about it not really happening, which means rough means roughly. It's open to some interpretation. Basically, if I'm if I say if I tell you that something happened and then you ask me, put, give me a polygraph and, and you say, did so-and-so happen? And I said, no, it didn't happen. Then de facto, apparently it happened. And that is the, that is the case of, of what happened with the lie detector, the polygraph test, the lie detector test that was given to uh, Buddy Lucas. Now, Charlotte LeBoy, Beloy, sorry, 
and she, and they may pronounce it, it's B O L O I S. They may pronounce it Bolois, Bolois, or something like that. I have no idea. I don't know the lady, and I don't know the family. But anyway, uh, she described how Muskelly got into a fight in June 1992 with her husband Dan Beloy. Quote: Little Jesse Muskelly was junior was going to pull a knife, but I got behind Jesse and took the knife from him. I said, if you're going to fight, fight fair. He busted a hole in my husband's lip. Now, you get might get from this that maybe Jesse had uh, some anger issues and maybe liked to fight, and you would be correct. I'm going to attempt to read... One more pair, one more chapter. These chapters are fairly short. Chapter eight. Damien Eccles' history of violence gave credence to an ability to torture and kill. According to his discharge summary from Charter Hospital in June 1992, where he'd been sent for violent acting out, uh, threatening to kill himself, etc. Uh, supposedly, this is the Discharge summary. Supposedly, Damien chased a younger child with an axe and attempted to set a house on fire. He denied this behavior. He reported that his girlfriend's family reported this so they could get him in trouble. He was also accused of beating up a peer at school. Uh, Damien admits to a history of violence. He said prior to admission, he did attempt to enucleate a peer's eye, eye at school. He was suspended subsequently from school. He was suspended on seven different occasions during the school year. He related he was suspended on one occasion because he set fire in his science classroom and also would walk off, camp, walk off campus on several occasions. He was disruptive to the school environment. He was also disrespectful to teachers. He has been accused of terroristic threatening. Um, that's the end of that. And uh, Eccles had gotten into trouble in one instance for spitting on a teacher. Uh, acquaintances told grisly stories about Eccles' casual cruelty. Uh, Joe Houston Bartouche, who's Jason Baldwin's cousin, volunteered this story that I'm that's about to be related, and uh, the police were the investigators. I believe there were police that were doing this in particular questioning. I'm almost sure it, was, it would have been the police were talking to. Uh, uh, Joe Houston's Bartouche's father uh, and Jason Baldwin supposedly had been over at Hubert, his uncle Hubert's, I think it was his great uncle actually, um, uh, house cutting the grass in, in West Memphis, cutting the grass on, on May 5th, 1993. And there's pretty good evidence that he actually did do that. I mean, there's no reason to think that that didn't happen. It, it didn't happen. It almost certainly didn't happen the way Jason described it. But it probably did happen that day. But And that's, that's sort of a side issue. The, the point here is that the police weren't there questioning Joe Bartouche. They certainly weren't grilling him. They didn't ask him to come forward with this story. He volunteered it. He's a, you would think he probably was, would be an advocate for his uh, cousin's uh, 
acquittal if he was taken to trial. I, he would seem to, you know, he would seem to be an advocate for his cousin, so to speak. But he tells this story about Damien Eccles. He told police that he, I, I got here. He told police, I, if I say it, to, they told police. He told police, it, it probably, he probably told the police. Anyway, he he and Eccles were walking when they came upon a sick dog. Eccles grabbed a brick. Joe Bartouche says, on 10-27-92, I was at Lakeshore Trailer Park with Damien Eccles when he killed a black Great Dane. The dog was already sick and he hit the dog in the back of the head. He pulled the intestines out of the dog and started stomping the dog until blood came out of his mouth. He was going to come back later with battery acid so he could burn the hair and skin off of the dog's head. He had two cat skulls, a dog skull, and a rat skull that I already knew about. He kept these skulls in his bedroom at Jack Eccles' house in Lakeshore. He was trying to make the eyeballs of the dog he killed pop out when he was stomping. Damien had a camouflage survival knife to cut the gut out of the dog with. Now, a similar knife, the so-called lake knife, was recovered behind the Baldwin home some months after the killings, and there's a theory that that is... In fact, the murder weapon that was used to mutilate uh, Stevie Branch and uh, and also uh, to emasculate uh, Chris Byers. Deanna Holcomb describing Eccles having similar knife. Eccles testified that he had owned a bunch of Rambo-style knives. Heather Clyde, who was Baldwin's girlfriend at the time of the uh, killings states one time at the Damien states that one time at the skating rink Damien told her that he stuck a stick in a dog's eye and jumped on it and then burned it according to police notes on the case Timothy Blaine Hodge a Lakeshore ninth grader told police Damien and Jason were always together. They stole a lot of stuff. I always seen just Jason and Damien and Dominique together walking around Lakeshore. There was a great big, great, there was a big black Great Dane dog at Lakeshore that I was on the trail over the bridge to the right as you go over the bridge. It was dead. Its intestines were strung out of his butt. A boy named Adam told me he heard Damien did it. Chris Luttrell, who was a member of a local Wiccan uh, coven, uh, that Eccles had said he was a member of at some points and denied that he was a member of at others. Murray Ferris and Chris Luttrell, who were the two main uh, people involved in this uh, Coven uh, denied that Eccles was part of a member of the Coven, but they did didn't know him, did spend time around him, and apparently on some level discussed Wicca or occultism with him. Anyway, Latrell told the police that Eccles liked to stick sharpened sticks through frogs to see how long it took them to die. He said Eccles claimed that he burned down his father's garage and stood in the flames chanting. Uh, Eccles told Mary Ferris, who's the other main teenage Wiccan in the area, besides Eccles, obviously, 
that he once bar poured uh, gasoline over his own foot and set it aflame. <coughs> Reports of Eccles planning to sacrifice his own child in a ritual were persistent. Luttrell told police that Eccles did not intend to kill the baby that Domini was expecting, as the child would entitle him to a larger government check. Now, concerning this ritual sacrifice of a child, this had come up. <coughs> this had come up, and it was confirmed somewhat by Dana Holcomb, who would have been the mother of this child that we're talking about if the relationship had continued. She said she ended the relationship with Eccles because she realized that if ever <coughs> if ever they were had children that Eccles would force her to attempt to force her, let's shall we say, to sacrifice the child because he was too cowardly to do it himself, but he would more than willing to let her do it or have her do it for him on his behalf is appropriation to the the gods as he saw them um deanna and Eccles were both according to her they were both involved in black magic um i have no reason to think she's lying um it, not really sure what the source for Deanna was on this story. Did Eccles, it's not clear. Did Eccles say that to her directly? Did she hear it about him after the, from some other source and decide that, that um, she, she didn't want to be a part of the relationship anymore? Frankly, they were pulled apart when they were arrested together after a very uh, an abortive little running away attempt that got no further than Lakeshore Trailer Park, and which generated all the this ended up, you know, Eccles gets pulled in for running away, and um, there's some sexual stuff that was sort of involved, and anyway, he eventually gets put in charter as a result of that encounter with police. Um, so a lot of bad things came from that. Presumably prior to that date, she hadn't heard the story about the ritual baby sacrifice. Though maybe she had, and maybe she was just holding on to it. Who knows? I have, I do know, uh, Dan, Dan Holcomb has been very, very low-key during the whole case. She did testify during the trial, but she, uh, she's otherwise been very, very low-key. Uh, I, I do know, I haven't checked lately, but I do know where she lives. I know her present name, et cetera, and I made reasonable attempts to contact her to ask her to clarify the, the facts in the case and have gotten no response. And, you know, from my standpoint, she's entitled to her privacy, and I'm not going to intrude further upon that. I'm almost sorry I'm even mentioning. I'm almost sorry I'm even mentioning it now because I, I really don't want the lady to be bothered by people bothering her about this case. Uh, I wasn't trying to do that, but I was trying to uh, get uh, you know at least a clear a clear story about where this ritual baby sacrifice story came from. Stories about Eccles drinking blood were similarly persistent and pervasive. 
And the source for this can be well documented since Eccles actually described blood drinking uh, to and his reasons for doing so, which was the acquisition of power to people at the mental health uh, hospitals he went to. The West Memphis Evening Times quoted an anonymous girl who had seen Eccles drink the blood of Baldwin and Dominey. The same story quoted a Lakeshore resident about missing dogs, presumably Damien being responsible for missing dogs. Uh, schoolmates asked Eccles if he drank blood. He didn't deny the practice. Of course, he didn't say he did either, but he told other people he did, so let's just take his word for it that he was a blood drinker. Juvenile officer Jerry Driver had transported Dominique to Charter Hospital after she broke probation on a shoplifting, shoplifting charge. Uh, Driver says, she discussed with me the blood drinking and said, why should I not drink blood because my mother drinks blood? Now, I will say I, have, I did talk to Dominique. Dominique denies this statement. Uh, Jerry Driver's now dead. Uh, a lot of people really are really down on Jerry Driver. They consider him to be one of the chief villains in the case. I, I don't consider him that way, uh, but he, he, is, he is one of the sources that, you know, he obviously had uh, a bit of an obsession with the idea that there was there were occult, dangerous occult practices going on in Crittenden County. He was correct, by the way, but he was also obsessed with it, and people who are obsessed don't always make the best uh, judgments about things. Uh, and perhaps... Jerry Driver is even somehow conflating uh, Damien and D uh, Dominey, though I, I don't see how he could really do that, but it's possible that that's what was actually, that he was doing at the time. Um, just a second. And, uh, you know, after we hear all this, and, you know, you get the, and there are many other stories from people who knew Damien Eccles at the time describing him as being creepy and making all sorts of, you know, making all sorts of ghoulish comments and really just trying his best to freak out, teen, you know, a lot of, a lot of teenage girls, et cetera, et cetera, in West Memphis at that time. You get his father, Joe Hutchison, telling the Paradise Lost filmmakers, this boy is not capable of the crime that he's been arrested for. I've seen him take a little kitten and love it just like you love a little baby. Now, when you consider that Damien Eccles intended to sacrifice his own little baby, his father's statement does hold a certain ironic truth. And that's it for the day. Thank you. Hope to be back soon.